Well, if you've been keeping track in our series on Ephesians, uh, you know that we're coming today to a passage that, at least in some circles, has generated a lot of controversy, a lot of discussions, uh, frankly, just a lot of books as well. Um, It's a passage that we find challenging uh, in our current context. Um, And it's one also, I think it's worth recognizing, that I think, tragically, sadly, Uh, has been even misused and abused um, all throughout church history. Uh, And I will say too, just for the record, I asked to preach on this, so don't blame Joel. This wasn't, you know, it's not his fault. I got stuck with this. Uh, But I, I wanted to preach on this because I'm aware of that history And I would like the opportunity, I feel really burdened, uh, to try and help us do better this morning. Uh, And so I want to, if we're going to do better, if we're going to not misunderstand it and misuse it, I think there's three things that all of us together need to make a conscious effort to do today. Uh, First, we need to pay attention to the cultural context. Uh, What I mean by that is we need to remember as we read this passage that it was written for us, but it was not written to us. Paul is not writing, the Apostle Paul is not writing to First Evangelical Free Church in 2023. If you were, I suspect he might have had some slightly different things to say to us. Some things I'm sure would be exactly the same. But Paul is actually writing to a small church of Jews and Gentiles in ancient Ephesus who have their own culture and their own assumptions about the world, about marriage and parenting and slaves. And if we want to understand what this passage meant to them, we have to understand what they thought about those things. Second, we need to pay attention to the context of the entire letter. I know this is maybe a funny thing to say, but, you know, we're now, what, eight weeks, I think, into the series, and, you know, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I'm going to guess a lot of you do not remember super clearly what we preached on in like week three or week five, right? Uh, And yet when Paul wrote this, he wrote one letter and he would have assumed, he would have intended that when the church in Ephesus got that letter, that they would bring it before the congregation and they would read the whole thing all at once. In fact, I suggest Paul would have found it very weird if they didn't do that. And yet we seldom do. We seldom do. My kids came home from school about a month ago, both chuckling as they got off the bus. One of their teachers, I think their language connection teacher, uh, had had written on the whiteboard when they got into class three lines that they found very funny. The first line just said, uh, let's eat, comma, mom. The second line said, let's eat, mom. And the third line said, commas save lives. It's making the point in a way that was very relatable for middle schoolers that punctuation, even just one little piece of punctuation, can have a huge impact on meaning. So can context. The stuff Paul has written earlier in this letter, the things he wrote just a couple paragraphs ago, have a huge bearing on how we see and understand our passage today. Pretending this passage is somehow totally separate from what came before and what comes after, that it just stands out there all by itself, opens the door to misunderstanding and misuse. It's part of a whole. So we need to keep in mind the original context. We need to pay attention to the context of the letter. And third, we need to make sure this morning that we are asking what Paul, and through Paul, the Holy Spirit, is trying to say, what he is trying to address, 
rather than assuming when we open our Bibles that Paul is answering the questions that we wish he was answering about marriage or parenting or slavery. Uh, That mistake, and it is a mistake, is very easy to make with this passage, or at least with parts of it. But it's worth saying right at the start, Paul is not answering the question, what is God's intent for the ordering of all human societies for all times and all places? As we'll see, Paul is doing something much more specific. What he's trying to do is he is trying to help the ancient church in Ephesus figure out what happens when the new reality of their union with Christ comes into contact with their current world and culture. How is that new reality, how should it transform their lives? Uh, I mean, if you've been following along from the book, Paul's talked about this in all areas of life, how, how it should transform whom and how they worship, how they conduct themselves in public. And today, Paul's gonna suggest that new reality should transform even the nature of their closest and most intimate relationships. That's what Paul is trying to do. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to spend a little time at the start here to paint a picture of what Paul and his audience would have taken for granted about marriage, parenting, and slavery. Uh, What was the reality on the ground in Ephesus, so to speak? And then I want us to consider the question Paul is asking, which is what happens... What happens when God, in the middle of that reality, adopts people from all across these different groups, right? Jews and Gentiles, females and males, slaves and their masters. When he adopts all of them into one new family in Christ Jesus. What happens when all those people across all those divides are brought into a new radical unity, a oneness with Jesus Christ himself. How is that going to change the way that we view marriage, that we view parenting and slavery? All right, so let's get started with life on the ground in Ephesus. Well, if you, if you lived anywhere or everywhere in the Roman Empire, uh, you are living in a deeply patriarchal society, in, in the literal sense. Uh, they actually had a term for this arrangement. They called it patria potestas, uh, the power of the father. And in practice, what this meant was that in his household, the father had near absolute authority over everyone. That includes his wife, his children, and his slaves, if he has any. And it's important to note, and I want to stress this, because this is the part that is really hard for us to wrap our minds around, The Romans weren't embarrassed by that. They weren't walking around going, man, you know, we really got to get with it. We got to modernize. We got to be enlightened. Uh, They were proudly patriarchal. They thought that was the good and moral way to order a society. That's the way they thought the gods had arranged things. All right? So they, it's a, it's a deeply proudly patriarchal world. Uh, Roman wives, actually for the record, had a little bit more freedom and agency than their Greek or many of their Near Eastern counterparts because the Romans did actually expect the wives to be partners, in a sense, with their husbands. The catch was they were partners, quite clearly and obviously, in pursuing the goals uh, and career of their husband or father. Uh, Not their own, that would have been crazy to to the Romans, nonsensical, 
their partners in pursuing the goals of their husband or father. Uh, Even the wealthiest, most powerful women of Rome really only could exercise uh, their agency, their power, their wealth, their connections in advancing the careers of their husband and their sons. And speaking of children, Roman children, it was very simple. You obey your parents, uh, specifically your father, who often was going to dictate, he was going to tell you what your career was going to be, who you were going to marry, where you were going to live, and we've got all kinds of records of this. Occasionally, if there was a falling out, he would tell you to divorce your spouse. Doesn't matter if you love them, doesn't matter if you have children together, if it no longer served the goals of the family, which usually meant the goals of the father, he could tell you to end it and you would have to end it. Um, So you you can kind of get a sense of the picture here, this absolute authority in the household. Uh, Slaves, finally, slaves were treated like slaves, which is to say, terribly, uh, like property. Uh, Now, cruelty to slaves generally was frowned upon, but it was not illegal. Now, educated slaves might enjoy some more privileges, but it's important to emphasize all slaves, all slaves were subject at all times, uh, and I'll put this gently, uh, to the the whims and abuses of of the household that owned them. It, it was a terrible way to live. At any moment, uh, anything could happen to you. But slavery, like patriarchy, in this world was simply taken for granted. And again, I, I want to emphasize this again. No one alive had ever experienced or even really heard of uh, life without either one of those things. All right? Uh, no one would have expected to experience life without them. The idea, in fact, that human society might be able to exist or function without patriarchy or slavery would have occurred to almost no one. This is simply how things were. It was just how the gods had ordered the world. So what we have, all right, to summarize here, in ancient Ephesus is a clearly stratified hierarchical world. Men were superior to women uh, and children, and citizens were superior to slaves. And then going the other way, slaves were expected to spend their lives serving their owners. And women and children, in a very practical way, were expected to spend their lives advancing the goals and careers of the patriarch. So that's reality on the ground in Ephesus. Uh, What is the new reality in Christ that Paul has been talking about throughout the whole letter of Ephesians? Well, I'm going to provide a a very brief recap of the big themes, but I want to assign some homework this week. This is kind of my usual homework. Um, But I think if you've done it before, you've maybe seen the benefit. I I really want to encourage you in the strongest possible way to make some time this week to just sit down you know, we've been in Ephesians for months now and read the entire letter in one sitting, just start to finish. And if it sounds intimidating, I'm just going to tell you, it's going to probably take you less than 15 minutes. It's not a long letter. But, but here's what I would encourage you to do also. As you're reading it, I want you to imagine that you live in the world that I have just described. And imagine what it must have been like, because, you know, we hear this message and we've been hearing it, some of us, for, for decades Right? But imagine sitting in that church uh, with Jews and Gentiles there together, men and women, slaves and their masters all there together, and listening 
as this letter is read to you, imagine how radical and challenging, how hopeful and compelling that letter must have been. I I promise you, you won't regret it. But for now, um, here's just a very brief recap uh, of this new reality that Paul keeps bringing up all throughout the letter. Paul has declared that in Jesus, God is reconciling all people to himself. It's right there, Ephesians chapter 1. All people on the same terms. And in doing this, Paul says, uh, Jesus has torn down the walls that divide us. He's destroyed those dividing walls. And therefore, Paul can now declare that we, there's a new reality. And this new reality, we are all one family, one people, one body. We have, we have one Lord and one Savior. We have received the same spirit, the same hope, and the same baptism. Now, this is worth stressing. That's Ephesians 4. We just talked about that not too long ago. Uh, you know, the Old Testament context is not like that. The temple courts, there was a Gentile court past which the Gentiles could not go. And then there was a court further ahead for women. Women could go to that court, Jewish women, but no further. Men could go further. Paul is saying, no, we have a new reality here. There isn't one baptism for men and one baptism for women. There's just the one baptism There's not one spirit, one Holy Spirit for slaves and one for masters. There's just the one spirit. That's it. There's not a Jewish family of God and a Gentile family of God. There is one family of God, and we are all members of that family. Gentile or Jew, female or male, slave or free. That's the new, the radical new reality that God, God has created in Christ Jesus. The reality in which all of us, Paul is looking at the church in Ephesus saying, you live in that reality right now if you are in Christ. So let me, let me summarize the new reality using Paul's words from 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 12, verses 24 to 26. Just listen to what Paul writes. He says, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but so that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all parts rejoice with it. That's the new reality that God himself has created in Christ Jesus. So, so now we've got, we've got the reality on the ground in Ephesus, all right? And we've got this new reality that God has created in Christ Jesus. The question now is, what happens when this gospel message of radical unity with Christ, of radical unity with one another as part of the same body, comes into contact with a society that is deeply patriarchal, and that takes slavery for granted? What's going, what should happen? Well, Paul's conviction is that this new reality in Christ must and will transform the way that we treat one another in all of these relationships. So look with me now. It's a fairly long passage, but I'm going to read through it. Chapter 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery, a profound revelation, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you are serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now believe me, I know that there's a lot that could be said, can be said, has been said about this. A lot of questions it raises. Uh, my first draft of the sermon was over an hour long. I've trimmed it down. You're welcome. Uh, I, I'm not saying those questions aren't important, that they shouldn't be addressed. They are important. They should be. Uh, but I, I have a specific burden this morning, and it's this. Too often we get lost in the details, and we miss what Paul tells us is the main point. And, and he tells us, verse 32, in case you're wondering, it feels like this weird non sequitur in what he's writing to husbands and wives, but it's like Paul can sense he's getting too far into the details, and so he interrupts himself and says, but listen, listen, this is the profound revelation. Not husbands and wives, not children and parents. What's the profound revelation? Verse 32, Christ in the church. The profound revelation that, that Paul has is the union that we all have in Christ. So what I want to focus on this morning is the way that Paul sees that profound union transforming the way they would have thought in their Roman society about these three relationships. So that's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on three ways that Paul sees this new reality in Christ transforming the life on the ground in Ephesus. So first, here's the first thing. 
Because they, that is husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, because they have all now been brought into equal union with Christ. Think again of this, the beginning of Ephesians 4. Because they all have the same Lord and the same spirit and the same baptism. Because of this new, radical, majestic reality in Christ Jesus, the first thing that has to change is that no one can be viewed as inferior to anyone else any longer. Not in the body of Christ. And in the ancient Roman context, let's just be honest here, that means wives, children, and slaves cannot be viewed as inferior to anyone else. If anyone at the church, in fact, looks across the congregation and sees somebody else that they think of as their inferior then they are denying by what they do what God has done in Christ. We see this actually all throughout the passage, uh, but you see it maybe first in Paul's choice to address all six groups directly, right? Uh, And in all three cases, just for the record, you maybe notice this, Paul chooses to address the group that would have been considered the group of lower social status in the Roman world. He always addresses them first, I tend to believe that was on purpose. Uh, But he says everything he says, assuming, and this is crazy, he says it assuming that slaves and slave owners are going to be next to each other listening to this message. He says it assuming that men and women, uh, parents and children are all listening together. Um, Paul assumes, Paul doesn't just assume, he declares All of these people have been brought into the family on equal terms, and he addresses them uh, with that assumption. He assumes people are eating, praying, and worshiping together. And what he is going to do throughout the passage is he's going to insist that they just cannot leave that way of living at the door when they leave church. Whatever that person across the congregation might be to them in the Roman world, in God's kingdom... They are now and forever your brother or sister in Christ. And we should treat them that way. So you can see this point kind of in the structure of the passage, but also in the content. Look at chapter 5, verse 21, the first verse. Here in verse 521, Paul's addressing everyone, right? Paul says, all of you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And again, I don't know, maybe you still find that challenging today, but imagine for a moment, you're a slave owner and you're slaves in the congregation. And the Apostle Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Think how that would strike you then. Uh, And he says this assuming that slaves and masters are going to be listening together. Assuming that husbands and wives, parents and children are all listening together. It's a command without carve-out and without exception and it's one I would, I would put to you that in the, in the Roman context is almost nonsensical. It only makes sense in light of the new reality of what God has done in Christ. Finally, if you need it put more bluntly, and you know, some of us do, look at the very end of the passage, chapter 6, verse 9. We'll, we'll talk about this verse again in a few minutes. But here I just want to point out the final words. In case we've missed the point, Paul is now just going to hit the nail squarely on the head. And he says, look... We are all of us now servants of one master in heaven. And there is what? There is no favoritism with him. 
And because there's none with him, there should be none in his body, none in his family. Because of our union with Christ, we cannot view anyone else in the body as our inferior. Because God certainly does not. So that's number one. Second, because of our union with Christ, because we are now in some profound sense all parts of one body, all of our relationships are necessarily reciprocal. I'm least happy with this wording, but I think you get the idea. Let me point out a couple examples. Look again at 521 and 22. Now, I'm going to stop here to make a weird sort of translation note. Um, Some of you in your Bible are going to have verse 21 and 22 uh, as separate sentences, separate paragraphs. Some of you are even going to have a, a heading, an editorial heading, inserted in between those two verses, okay? Uh, It'll look maybe something like this. I think we've got a slide of it, right? And so uh, the the translation group decided um, they wanted you to be really sure that uh, 21, that's that's a different passage. Verse 22, this is a new passage. This is the instruction to... To household relationships section. Um, but it's worth noting that in Greek, verse 21 and verse 22 are one sentence. In fact, in both of those sentences combined, there's only one verb. The verb to submit occurs only one time. Uh, you maybe noticed when I read it earlier, that's why I read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. There's only the one verb. Okay, it's almost as though, I think I have an example of that, maybe next, yep, so there you go. It's almost as though Paul, on purpose, tried to make those two verses grammatically inseparable. Now, yes, he is going to single out wives in verse 22, but he connects that command to the one in verse 21 that applies to everyone, Uh, So here's what I think happens if we keep those two verses together. Uh, If we separate them, uh, it's tempting to read it, and people have, I think maybe with with not great intent, as though what Paul has really said is, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, unless you're married, in which case, uh, just wives do the submitting. Well, no, that's not what he wrote. Uh, I think if you keep them together, the idea that you get is that In the body of Christ, we all submit to one another, and marriages are an example of that, not an exception to it. One more example here. Look with me again at uh, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. You know, I know the husbands and wives thing really gets us riled up, but this is, if anything, more radical. Uh, Again, if you know, if you get chapter 6, verse 5, Paul's addressing slaves. And in the beginning, I got to tell you, what he writes is going to sound good to any Roman slave owner. Because what does he say? He says, slaves, you need to work hard even when your master isn't watching. So far, so good if you're a Roman slave owner, right? And then he goes on. In fact, you should serve wholeheartedly all the time as though you're serving the Lord. Even better. You're a Roman slave owner. This all sounds great. You're on board with all of it. Then Paul pivots. He looks squarely at the slave masters and he says something that just I still can't, I mean, it's so radical. It's, again, it's, it's almost got to be nonsensical in their world because he looks at the masters and what does he say? He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. And you just, I mean, you should read that and like alarms should go off and you should think, well, what could that mean? Is Paul suggesting? I mean, he's just said, 
slaves serve your masters wholeheartedly, is he implying masters should serve their slaves wholeheartedly? It kind of seems like it. I mean, I would put it to you at an absolute bare minimum, Paul is insisting that because of this profound new unity in Christ, that that is going to require profound reciprocity even between a master and a slave. After all, I think Paul would remind us, they might be your slave for now, but for eternity, that's your brother or your sister in Christ. And you'd be a fool not to act like it. One final point. Uh, so we've got, we can't, because of this profound unity, we cannot view anyone as an inferior. Because of this profound unity, all relationships are necessarily reciprocal. And third, because of this profound unity, because we've been brought into this equal union with Christ, our conduct at all times and toward all people, but especially toward each other in the body, needs to follow the example of Jesus and bring him glory. Now, this point is so common in this passage, it almost becomes hard for us to see. I mean, it, it just saturates all of it. Just let me walk through quickly. 521, submit to, to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. 522, wives to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, chapter, verse 25, love your wives as, and give yourselves up for them as Christ did for the church. Chapter 6, children obey your parents. In the Lord, slaves, serve your masters wholeheartedly as you would Christ. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Why? Because you know that Jesus is your master and theirs. In every relationship, the way that we treat one another has to follow the example of Jesus and bring him glory. Look, I, I know I'm just dumping information on you this morning. So if you're feeling overloaded and you're like, There's, I'm, I'm really realistically walking out of here with only one thing, this is a great candidate. Because I'll just suggest to you, if we all of us are genuinely striving, I mean genuinely, to follow the example of Jesus in all of our relationships, I don't think you can go too far wrong. I think in a very practical sense, if you're striving to be like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, the rest will more or less take care of itself. All right, so those are the three points where I think Paul sees this new reality in Christ transforming the reality in Ephesus. Like I say, I know it's a fire hose of information, but as I wrap up, I want to try and explain one more time why I felt burdened, and I did feel uniquely burdened this week, to, to bring this message for this reason. Uh, here, here's why. Because if we pretend this section, it's, it's just all by itself, right? Cut off from the rest of the letter, stands on its own. If we pretend it was, it was really just addressed to us in our context, I think we inadvertently, we unintentionally rob this passage of its power. And here's what I mean by that. I'll tell you from a guy's, a Christian guy's perspective, because that's what I am, and I can tell you what it's like. You know, if you read that and you make those assumptions, here's what you do. And, you know, guys, I won't ask you to say that you agree with me or that you felt this way. But, you know, you read that passage and you look around and you think, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I, I'm gonna, I bet I treat my, I mean, I'm not a perfect husband by any means, but I treat my wife better than the average Greek or Roman did. 
So I'm good there, right? I, I know, I know for a fact I'm a lot nicer to my kids than they would have been. I, I'm going to let them choose their own spouse. I mean, more or less, I think. We'll talk about that later, girls. Um, you know, but I listen to them. I'm encouraging them to follow their passions. You know, Roman fathers would have never done that. Uh, and I don't have any slaves. In fact, I'm anti-slavery. So, man, you know, I hear that passage. I, if, I, if I assume it's written to me in my context, I mostly just... You know, I pat myself on the back and I move on with life. Nothing more to learn here for me. Now, now ladies, children, there's maybe a thing or two you could stand to be reminded of. But, you know, on the whole, right, I think we're all doing pretty well. We're all doing pretty well. Uh, we, we rob it of our power. We congratulate ourselves because we're not ancient Greeks or Romans. And then we just move on. Like, hey, isn't that great? We're doing better than they were. But this isn't... A theological treatise, it doesn't stand on its own. It's a call to real people in a real culture with their own values and assumptions. It is a demand from the Apostle Paul that they must allow this new reality in Christ to come into contact with and transform the cultural assumptions they have taken for granted. And if we assume that's what's happening then I think we still have a message that has the power to challenge and convict us today because we have to do the same thing. We have to allow the new reality, the radical reality of what God has done in Christ to come in contact with our culture, with our assumptions. And we need to ask ourselves honestly, where does this message of radical unity and equality in Christ transform us today? Now I'll say... We're not a society with slavery. Praise God. Uh, we don't believe in patria potestis. Praise God for that too. But you know what I see when I look around our American culture? I see a culture that highly values education. And I want to say, I'm a fan of that. Overall, I think that's a fine thing. But I've seen it become a problem when in our culture and even in the church, we look at the people around us and we see the people with more degrees and more education as superior to people with less. Or we somehow assume they, because they have more degrees, are going to be more qualified for this or that position within the church. And I got to tell you, if we do that, we are denying by what we do, by how we behave, the new reality God has created in Christ Jesus. And man, the big one for us, we, I mean, I was just thinking about this this week, our culture just admires, I mean, we reverence people with wealth and with fame and who achieve a great deal of material success. I mean, just look sometime and try to remove yourself a little bit. It's crazy. We, we come to people, they, they made a ton of money doing one thing, and we ask them about foreign policy as though, I mean, maybe they have a good opinion, but, but why would we do that? Well, because we revere that. Man, that's an area where this message, this message of a new reality in Christ challenges us. I, I don't think we have a big problem with this in our church per se, but man, if you don't think the church in America has a problem with this, you haven't been paying attention. And if this message, we let it come into contact, I think what it challenges us to say is, man, when someone really wealthy walks into your church and someone who's really struggling, struggling you better not see somebody who's superior to somebody else. You better not treat them differently because of that. If someone really famous, like genuinely famous, 
walks through our doors, they better not get special treatment because they're famous. We better not treat someone else worse because they're not famous like that. If we do that, we deny by what we do and what we think what God has done in Christ Jesus. There's more things. Some of them are going to be personal to us. We, we all have to honestly examine ourselves and ask, where is this new radical unity? Where is it pushing up against our assumptions, against the way we live? We cannot allow that to happen here in the body of Christ. I'll close with this. I, I, I thought late this week, I was thinking about how to close this, and I thought of Mark 10, where uh, Jesus is with his disciples and the most normal, predictable human thing in the world happens, right? You got this group of guys, they've been following Jesus and some of them start to think, uh, you know what? He might just be able to do it. He might just actually succeed in setting up his own kingdom. And so the minute they believe that, what's the first thing human beings want to do? Well, James and John come to Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus, uh, assuming this all works out, we would like to be number two and number three in your kingdom. I mean, it doesn't, you know, he can be two, I can be three, I can be two, he can be three. Either way is fine with us, as long as we're two and three in the new kingdom you're setting up, right? Just in case you succeed, we want to make sure we have power over everybody else. It's the most natural human thing in the world. And Jesus looks at him and says, I'm sorry to see you still don't understand what it is I'm doing here and what my kingdom is about, right? And then... Word gets out, someone's eavesdropping, right? Another disciple overhears this, tells the rest of them, you're not going to believe what these two guys did. Uh, and they're mad, not because of what they did, but because they beat them to the punch. Because they're all going, man, these jerks, we were going to ask them to be number two, and they beat us to it, right? I, I mean, friends, I, I challenge you. I, I know of no society and culture in the world where position and power uh, doesn't tempt people to lord it over the ones beneath them. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. He gathers them around. He says, guys, guys, listen. Um, you've been with me for a while, but, but you're missing something really, really like foundational and fundamental here. You know what the pagans do, disciples? Their kings, their people with position and status and power, you know what it is they do? They lord it over those beneath them. And then he looks at them and says, not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the great serve. And again, just because this phrase irritates me, not the great are servant leaders, the great are servants. The great serve. The greatest in my kingdom. You want to know who the number two is going to be, Jesus says? The one who's the slave of all. He will be number two. She will be number two in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the great serve. Man, in every culture, the minute we get position or power or authority, the temptation to lord it over those beneath us is almost irresistible. And that's exactly why this message of the new reality in Christ will always pose a challenge. Because the new reality God has created in Christ Jesus is flipped exactly upside down. In Jesus' kingdom, the great serve. In Jesus' kingdom, we don't bicker over position. We don't bicker over who exactly should be serving us and submitting to us. In Jesus' kingdom, we are all called to serve and to submit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. And in case we've forgotten why that is, we're told right there in Mark, Jesus tells us, 
Because he is the king, and he came not to be served, but to serve and to pour his life out as a ransom for many. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for the incredible message of the gospel. Lord, even today, 2,000 years later, it is radical and hopeful and beautiful. Even today, it challenges our culture, our values, our assumptions profoundly. If we will only let it, God, I pray that you would help us uh, to submit ourselves to your word, uh, to the message of the gospel, and most of all, to to the new reality that you have created in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would help us in all of our relationships and all the situations we find ourselves in to genuinely strive to follow the example of Jesus and to bring him glory by the way we treat those around us. Help us, Father, to strive not for greatness in this world or culture, but greatness in the kingdom of God. And help us, Father, to do that by serving and submitting to one another. In your name we pray. Amen.